remember the comic strip Dennis the Menace. And the strip frequently depicts the family in church services. And maybe this is one that's particularly appropriate when I've already been up here talking once today. But I I tried to find this one online. I couldn't to show it to you. But at any rate, it shows the sermon going on and Dennis leans over to his father and he whispers, if we pay him now, will he stop talking? I think it may be that the contribution or the offering is the most neglected aspect of the activities we do in the worship assembly, at least in terms of our discussion of it. It's often the butt of jokes like that. Or else sometimes we treat it as a a source of almost regrettable necessity. That is, well, you know, we have to pay the bills, so we're doing this. Or sometimes we treat it as a a source of embarrassment, especially when unbelievers hold up the examples of charlatans that we all know about who fleece people out of their living so that they can live lavish lifestyles themselves. And of course, nobody likes it when the preacher starts talking about giving. And I've got news for you, the, the preacher doesn't actually like to talk about giving either because it can be somewhat awkward. Yeah, Kelly backed me up on that one. He didn't like it any more than I do. Maybe we even wonder why we participate in this in the assembly at all. After all, if this is just a matter of collecting funds, we could do that in a lot of different ways. You could mail in a check, or we could have a a box to drop things in at the back as we go out, or actually we have an online giving portal that not many people use, but it's been set up for several months now for your convenience. Well, we could just shut down all giving here in the assembly and redirect everyone to that online portal for their giving. So our goal this morning is to place our giving in general and particularly the offering in the worship assembly on a firmer doctrinal footing so that hopefully we can gain a greater appreciation of it. In Romans chapter 12, Paul is beginning a a new section of his letter and he urges the audience in verse number one to present their bodies as living sacrifices. That is, to live lives that are completely and totally devoted to God. Instead of living like the rest of the world, Christians are to live lives that are conformed to God's will. And then he starts to lay out in that chapter ways that we do that. Christians are to love one another genuinely. We're to honor others above ourselves. In fact, he says we need to outdo one another in showing honor. We're to serve the Lord fervently, he says. In particular, I want us to note verse number 13, where Paul writes, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The readiness to give is to be a constant feature, a characteristic of the Christian life. If we read through the book of Acts in particular, I think we can't help but be impressed with the way that those early Christians genuinely contributed and demonstrated generosity in all aspects of their lives. 
Uh, So, for instance, in the aftermath of the church's beginning on Pentecost, we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 44 that all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There's a similar summary statement in chapter 4 with a particular emphasis on one individual, Barnabas. We read beginning in verse number 32 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There wasn't a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. A little bit later on in Acts chapter 6, we read about the daily distribution of funds to needy widows. But as we read further, we realize this giving wasn't just a a private activity. It was also a corporate activity of the church. We've seen an indication of that already, haven't we? And that when people uh, sold land and they gave the proceeds to the apostles, they intended the apostles then collectively to redistribute those funds to those who were needy. Or another example is in Acts chapter 11. Uh, A prophet named Agabus predicts that a famine is coming. And in consequence of that, we read in verse number 29 that the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. In fact, a collection of for the relief of those poor believers in Judea is a project that occupied a great deal of Paul's ministry and his letters. He writes about it in Romans. He writes about it in each of the two Corinthian letters. And it's just here that we have a connection between giving and the activities that we engage in in the worship assembly. Giving finds specific expression in our meetings as Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the text that was read to us just a few moments ago, Paul speaks concerning this collection that he's taking up in a manner that indicates contributions were made at the weekly assembly. We have church giving here to meet church needs. So in keeping with our series of lessons over the last several weeks where we've been looking at the idea of worship generally. We've been looking particularly at some of the things that we do here and with a a view not just to going and hopefully rehashing things we already know necessarily, but really digging in and asking why do we do the things that we do and what's the significance of these activities. We want to focus for a few moments on giving this morning and we'll return to 1 Corinthians 16 here in a moment to draw some practical suggestions for our worship. But first of all, I want to ask some more general questions. I want us to to lay more of a a big picture of groundwork for giving in general. What does it mean for Christians to give? Well, 
there are a number of passages of Scripture that talk about the responsibility of God's people to give. And if we had all the time in the world today and we wanted to build a really thorough framework, we'd study the Old Testament background for this. That's important. We're not going to do it today. Instead, I simply want us to look at the most thorough New Testament discussion of giving. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Now, this is in the context of that collection that we talked about that Paul's taking up for the relief of the poor in Judea. And here he's urging those in Corinth that they need to participate in that. They promise that they're going to do it, and he's holding their feet to the fire. They need to uh, live up to their part of the bargain. As we read through this and see what Paul hits upon, I want you to notice something. Paul doesn't appeal to economic necessity, that is, they need the money. He doesn't appeal to humanitarian motives. He doesn't appeal to a simple desire to be charitable, to be altruistic. All of those things are are good in themselves. Each one of those is a worthy motivation, so I'm not trying to discount them. But not a one of those is peculiarly Christian. Paul instead describes giving here in these two chapters as a spiritual activity. It's something different than those motivations we talked about there. It's related to fundamental Christian doctrines. And I'm going to read through chapters 8 and 9 here at length to get the full context of the discussion. I'm not even going to have it on the uh, slides here, so you can either listen closely or, or read along with me. But let's read this and then go back and talk about some of the key terms that Paul uses. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify. And beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. For I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. 
Now he interrupts here to talk specifically about Titus and some others who are going to be coming to gather this up. And he picks up the idea of the collection generally again in chapter 9, verse 1. Now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know that your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you, for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, I know that was a lengthy reading, but I wanted us to see that entire context so we can get an idea of the way Paul describes the importance of giving here. And I want us to note a few things that he has to say. First of all, giving is a grace, a favor, the ESV translates it in context occasionally, a privilege if you have an NIV. God's people should never view giving as an obligation that we have to endure, something that we have to to check off because it's commanded. Instead, it's a privilege that we need to enjoy, an opportunity that should cause us to rejoice. See, our giving, Paul says here, is rooted in Christ's act of giving, chapter 8, verse 9. The doctrinal basis of our giving is what God gave in Christ. Giving reveals God's fundamental nature, doesn't it? Most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, or that is God loved the world, he demonstrated it in this way, that he gave his one and only son. The Macedonian Christians responded in that same spirit of the Lord, a spirit of giving. So you see, to give is to be like God. To give is to manifest the grace of God to others. His grace comes to his people so that we might show grace to others. 
Giving is a privilege because it's a privilege to show the grace and the goodness of God to others. It's a privilege to give because it's a privilege to give thanks to God for his indescribable gift, as Paul puts it in this chapter. And thanks is actually the very same word in the Greek. We mentioned it in our class this morning, if you were there, chorus. Grace, favor, privilege, that word is also the word for thanks in Greek. So in other words, giving begins in God, it flows through his people, and then it returns to God in thanksgiving. Secondly, giving is an act of fellowship. In chapter 8, verse number 4, Paul says that the Macedonians begged him to participate, or as it says here, to, uh, to take part, to share in the relief of the saints. This same word is translated at other places as fellowship, as sharing, as joint participation, as communion, incidentally. That is what we call the Lord's Supper. It comes from this same word. And this seems to be Paul's favorite word for contributing. It's the one he uses in Romans 12, 13 that we read towards the beginning of our lesson where he talks about contributing to the needs of the saints. It's the word he uses in Philippians 4, verse 15 when he talks about how only the church in Philippi partnered with him, same word, in spreading the gospel. You see, when we give money to do the Lord's work, we share in a special way with others who are doing that very same thing. You think about the historical context of these chapters. I already mentioned it. This was a collection taken up from Gentile churches to help meet the needs of those in Judea. That's an important thing. It was a unifying gesture. It was demonstrating that there wasn't that old wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles anymore. No, now they were all one people in Christ. It was symbolically important. And the same thing holds true for us. When we give, we're expressing that we're one with Christ. And because of that, we're all one with each other. Next, Paul says that giving is a ministry or a service. In chapter 9, verse 1, for instance, when the Macedonians gave, they were sharing in a ministry. Giving is a service performed for the saints. And note, this isn't just a, a physical service. This is a, a spiritual service. He says it down in chapter 9, verse 12. Remember, Paul saw this contribution as uniting Jew and Gentile, demonstrating that they're one in Christ. This isn't just about money. So he describes this in the highest spiritual terms. He says this would lead the Jews to give thanks to God. It would lead them to appreciate their Gentile brothers and sisters. And this ministry of giving, then, is a way of glorifying God, he says. All Christians have a ministry, a responsibility of serving others. We're all ministers. It's unfortunate, in a sense, that uh, often the preacher is referred to as the minister. It's not that it's wrong. It's that it's a little bit misleading. And so... On my door, for example, it says pulpit minister, or sometimes you'll have preaching minister, something like that, that describes the preacher's role a little bit more accurately. That's good, because otherwise we might get the wrong impression that I'm a minister and you're not. But in fact, we are all ministers. We all have the responsibility to serve others. Giving is one way that we do that. 
And Paul says that God is glorified as a result of that. Giving is also a blessing. In chapter 9, verse 5, this word that's translated as gift, some translations will render it as bounty or as blessing. All of those are accurate. And Paul expected this as something that was a willing gift, not something that was exacted. This isn't a tax. It's not from compulsion. Kelly expressed this admirably in his prayer that we don't do this because we have to. Rather, we do this because we choose to. We want to. We recognize that we're giving back to God. It's something that's done for the good of another because, as he says there, and we know, God loves a cheerful giver. Giving is a benefit that we confer on someone else. So in chapter 9, verse 6, he says, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That literally can be translated, whoever sows blessings will reap blessings. And that's because we've been blessed by God. That's the point that Paul makes clear here. We can't outgive God, of course, but we can emulate God by trying to bless others the same way that he's blessed us, by giving to us. Finally, Paul says that giving is a test or a proof. Giving is rooted in God's giving, and that's what the gospel really is. The gospel is the story of God's giving, the fact that he gave of himself in Christ. And since that's true, our giving is a test of whether or not we believe the gospel. Our giving is a test or a proof of whether or not we're obedient to the gospel. It's a proof of our confession of the gospel. Paul says it down in chapter 9, verse 13. We might think of it as as something like a, a barometer of our interest in the kingdom of God. The Macedonians passed that test, he says in chapter 8, verse 2. Now that same test is being applied to the Corinthians. The question we need to ask is, What if that test were applied to us? Because it is being applied to us. And that brings us to some practical observations we want to make for our giving. And specifically, while a lot of what we've talked about here relates to giving as Christians in general, we want to think specifically about the act of of giving, the offering, the contribution here in the worship assembly. And this brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul gives instructions here to govern this contribution that he's uh, talking about. And if I would ever stop flipping back and forth past it, I would read it to you. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Several have noted this over the years. At least five principles to govern our giving emerge from this passage, and I don't normally like to do this because I think it's forced. But You can even make them alliterative, and it actually works here. It's not forced, and I think it can help us remember them. First of all, our giving is to be periodic. Paul says when this giving is to take place, the first day of the week. Literally, the ESV translates it right. This is the first day of every week. 
We've spoken before about Christians meeting together on the first day of the week for the purpose of eating the Lord's Supper. Well, Paul indicates here that one of those other things they did when they met together is to take up this contribution, this financial gift took place at these meetings. And that's an important activity too. And I want you to notice that this isn't just something that was ad hoc, something designed to to meet a particular need limited in time and scope. This is something that he laid down in all churches. He says, as I instructed the churches of Galatia, so I'm instructing you. So in other words, whether we're talking about Galatia or Corinth, two different continents, by the way, whether we're talking about Liberty, downtown Houston, New York City, London, England, India, it doesn't matter. All churches are to be engaged in this. A collection should be taken just like it was 2,000 years ago. Secondly, giving is personal. It's a personal act. Who's to give? Each one of you, Paul says. Each and every Christian has a responsibility to give. And as a practical suggestion, that's a sort of responsibility that even children can learn. I remember when I was a kid being given a a dollar to put in in church. I had, and this is when I was really young, you know, five years old or so. I would get a $3 a week allowance. $1 was to spend on anything I wanted. And that didn't go very far. (laughs) Uh, It definitely wouldn't go very far now, but it didn't even go very far back then. Although you could at least still get uh, Coke from some machines for 50 or even 35 cents. Now those are a dollar. One dollar to spend on anything I wanted, one dollar to save, and one dollar to put in church. And I still remember that. It taught me that lesson about trying to distribute your money properly. And maybe money's tight. Maybe you literally can't even spare that dollar, but you know, even a few pennies will teach that very same lesson. Giving isn't only a privilege and a joy, it is, but it's also a personal responsibility. Next, we see from this passage that giving is planned and proportional. There's a a predetermined amount. Put something aside and store it up as you may prosper, Paul says. What we give to God should be determined in advance. Now, we're not trying to discourage spontaneous giving here. That's a good thing. Sometimes unanticipated needs may come up, or or you may have a bit extra that you can give, and, and that's fantastic if you can contribute in those ways. But the point is, when we assemble here together, we should have already put some thought into what it is we're going to offer. Why is that? Well, I don't know for sure, but I think in light of everything we've said today, maybe it's because it causes us to really think about what God has given us. And that sort of deep reflection about how much he's given should cause us to want to give back to him in return. So that it's not just scrambling around at the last minute, reaching into our pocket and finding whatever couple of bills we have to have there and amongst the old receipts and stray business cards and stick of gum, but rather it's something that's planned, proportional. It's generous, giving as we've been prospered. No exact amount is legislated here. It's important that we notice this. As we've been prospered, some of our religious friends and neighbors advocate a tithe. Uh, The New Testament doesn't actually do that. But I will say this as a a practical matter. 10% is a good place to start. It's not required, and it's certainly not a max. If you're giving more than that now, that's fantastic. You should be commended for that generosity. 
But I'll say this, and keep in mind that I have no idea, none whatsoever, what anyone here gives. I'm completely insulated from that by design. I don't want to know what you give, and you don't bear any responsibility towards me. But I'll say this. For any church, if every person were commit to commit to giving 10%, not even of their gross income, but of their net income, just 10%, if everyone committed to that, I'm convinced that not a single congregation would have their average weekly contribution drop. Something to think about. Fourthly, our giving is to be preventative, Paul says, so that there will be no collecting when I come. You know, some people have argued that what Paul here is talking about is not a a public collection. He's talking about a private storing up to meet some specific need so that we don't have here any example of a, a regular weekly offering. But that doesn't make any sense in context. I mean, that would cause the very thing Paul's trying to avoid, a big gathering when he gets there. So that won't do. This is something that is to anticipate needs for when they might arise, not something that's to be done on an as-needed basis. And finally, we note along with that that it's to be purposeful. This is to go as a gift to Jerusalem there in verse number 3. They weren't hoarding funds here for a war chest. They had a specific purpose for their money. And that's important that we keep in mind too. I've known of some congregations, I can think of one in particular, and I won't call it by name because I know at least some of you would would know this church. But a decade or so ago, this congregation had well north of a quarter million dollars in their building fund. And this is not a, a large congregation, it's about 50 people, so they don't need a massive facility. But the highway was coming in near to their building, they already had some land bought, they were planning to build further up the road. And because they were so consumed with that, a missionary would come by or someone else needing uh, some funds and they would not even give them so much as say $100 because they didn't know if they could cash flow that, that's the way it was put. Well, we're here over 10 years later. They already had the land. The highway's right up next to the door. That building is still not built. I doubt if it ever will be, frankly. And that building fund's probably up to half a million dollars by now. They're hoarding it. That's not what God intends to be done with money that's contributed to the church. It needs to be going out for specific purposes. And fortunately, not only this church, every church I've ever been involved with personally has done a really good job of that. We contribute to mission works. We contribute to the food bank, of course. We have evangelistic efforts uh, going on. And not only those things, but uh, sometimes on an ad hoc basis, we can give out some funds if needed. That's what we should be doing. And fortunately, that's why we have a, a budget that's made available for people to look at. And I encourage you to always take that sort of thing into account because if a church, whether it's this one or whether at some point you move away, you go to another congregation and you see that they're hoarding money rather than using it to further the work of the kingdom, that's not what they ought to be doing and you need to keep that in mind. So I hope we've seen this morning something of the importance the New Testament places on giving and especially 
on the weekly contribution in our assemblies. And I pray that we take this often overlooked aspect of our worship just as seriously as any other. Because when we read through these chapters, we see that Paul certainly assigned a high spiritual level to giving. This is an act of worship, and that's because it relates to the very foundations of the gospel. It's an expression of its very nature. God gave to us, and so we give to him in return. Now, of course, the beginning of that giving and the foundation of all of our giving is giving ourself to Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't done that. I want to urge you to do so today. Put your trust in him. Turn to God in repentance. Be buried with Jesus in the waters of baptism. Have your sins washed away and begin that life devoted to giving yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice, as Paul talks about in Romans 12, verse number 1. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, but you've stumbled along the way, and you need to give back to the God who's given so much to you. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you in any way, we urge you to respond now while we stand and while we sing.